Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we're presenting another bonus Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. Normally, we're heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. This episode will be played on various podcast apps and, of course, at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Today's episode uh, is about racial and ethnic differences in both the infection rate and the mortality due to the COVID-19 or coronavirus pandemic. And it was suggested by a recent guest and a great supporter of Dr. Doctor, Felix Rodriguez, uh, a doctor himself, an oncologist, and a very active Catholic Medical Association member from way down in Boynton Beach, Florida. He appeared last Friday evening on EWTN's Television News Nightly program. Felix was born in Puerto Rico and graduated from medical school there. He's actually the fourth recent guest of Dr. Doctor, along with Paul Carson, Francie Broghammer, and Yusuf Fernandez to appear on the national television news show, EWTN News Nightly. And Chris, not only does Felix have a deep personal interest in how COVID-19 or how any disease might affect someone of different racial backgrounds, but you also have a deep personal interest. Well, I do. I mean, in the interest of interest, in the interest of disclosure, <laughs> um, my wife and I are very fortunate to be the adoptive parents of two amazing 11-year-old Congolese children from uh, the Congo, Africa. And they've been home with us now about, uh, well, not about, just recently, four years. We, rep- wow. we celebrated our fourth, what we call Gotcha Day. Um, and it's been very interesting. So as parents of African children, um, we've become keenly sensitive to anything that has um, a racial disparity to it, whether that's mm. public health issues, social issues, educational issues, anything. Mm. Uh, and so I'm very excited uh, as we take on this important topic. And since we believe that Felix would be an excellent guest to talk about this, this topic personally and as a physician, uh, we invited him to be part of this episode, and he's graciously uh, agreed to join us. And joining Felix today will be recurring guest, Dr. Mark Strand, professor at North Dakota State University, who's an epidemiologist who's very knowledgeable regarding the data, the theories, and the structural inequalities in our nation that can lead to variable healthcare outcomes between different groups of Americans. He's brought it up on previous episodes. He's taught me some terms I didn't realize. And so both Mark and Felix, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. You know, Tom, one of these days people will say, uh, I've appeared on Dr. Doctor. That's how they'll be introduced on other shows. They'll say, <laughs> I like the way you think. <laughs> I, I do. Aren't you guys an award? Aren't you guys an award-winning uh, program? <laughs> <laughs> yes, there, there is. There is some truth. That's to that. right. You forgot to mention that. Yeah, there's some kind of conspiracy about that going around. We we think it's true. (laughs) In our recent episode with Dr. Barbara Golder, we talked about medical research and something called the null hypothesis, null being nothing or, or zero, nada, zip. So a study is typically designed to see if there is no significant difference between two study groups. Well, a recent Lancet Medical Journal, and that's one of the most highly regarded medical journals in the world, they said that the null hypothesis for this episode might be this. Given their settled status, either after migration or by birth in the country, ethnic or racial minority populations experience healthcare outcomes equal to those of others. Mark, do we have enough to know whether this null hypothesis is true? Um, well, I think we'll get into it here um, and, and answer that question. Um, and, but I think it's a great way to start because it actually is the perspective that I think a lot of people in the more privileged, like majority culture society in the U.S., that is their starting point. And there's just so many details that go from a person's life experience if they're from a, an ethnic minority group to uh, integration into the society that's just far more complex. And so I think this program I'm really excited about uh, and privileged to do this with Felix because I hope we can help many individuals who are sincere and well-meaning but who don't quite get some of the issues of structural inequalities. I hope in this program we can unpack that a little bit. Felix, how do we define these terms, race and ethnicity? You know, being a white guy, I don't want to offend anybody. I want to know what they want to be called. What, 
what do people and what is race? What is ethnic and how should we refer to these groups? So if you go back to when we were doing social studies in elementary school, they, they were mentioning races, white, black, uh, Asian, and so on. But uh, in the common parlance in the United States, we, we have these terminologies that uh, date back to probably the civil rights movement. And in the modern uh, language, in the modern way that we talk, they are terms that are not well-defined. And so uh, I would say that if we talk about ethnicity, although there will be moments where race is going to be a synonym of ethnicity, uh, they're not really uh, interchangeable. And one one example. So um, all the time uh, we go into this way, how are we going to refer to people, let's say, from from Latino backgrounds? Um, And are we going to call them Hispanic? Are we going to call them uh, Latinos? And um, I just wanted to clarify before I talk about ethnicity and race that um, it, that terminology of Latino and Hispanic, uh, it depends on who you speak with. Uh, if you talk to, to us in Latin American countries, we refer ourselves to being Latino Americanos. Uh, and if you use that word Hispanic, uh, it's basically descendants from from Hispania, which is the, the old Latin word for España. So we're, that's where that word came from. But uh, So that would be more of an ethnicity. Uh, and I dare say that probably even cultural, because if you go to Latin America, there's going to be different ethnicities. Uh, we have the Native Americans of Latin America the, that we commonly call uh, Indians, and so that would be perhaps a different ethnicity than the people that were actually the descendants of the, the Spaniards or the Europeans. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question, Tom. Well, we'll go to the scientist, Mark. In epidemiology, <laughs> you have statistics. You have to put things in clearly defined groups. Or sort of, How do epidemiologists define those terms for statistics purposes? Um, we are behind the times because in epidemiology, we would still say race as an indication of what is an external appearance. So it's skin color, no, hair. You don't mean human when you say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but nowadays, those two terms, in my understanding, biology refers to an intention to categorize people as somehow different biologically, and it's an outdated term. Race is considered to be an attribute that white scientists imposed on people to categorize and sort them. Whereas ethnicity is a self-attributed culture, language, and ancestry, and identity. So the popular conversation would refer to ethnicity as a way of then respecting that person's right to say, my ethnicity is just as Felix was just saying, a self described. And it's related to race, but it's different. So you'll have people who come from Haiti who are not treated as African, you know, they're not treated as black in America because they're Latinos or they're at least Central Americans. Uh, So it becomes very complicated. Uh, And this is why I think for the majority culture, it's important to understand that the complication brings with it personal feelings, human beings their identity and who they are. And we need to be very careful about clumping them in ways that's disrespectful of that nuance. You know, I, I encountered this, this vocabulary challenge just last week in a telemedicine visit that didn't have video. Mm. And so I'm talking to this woman, I'm a gynecologist and I do infertility surgery. And I say to her as we're finishing up, what's your greatest concern about the surgery? She says, keloid formation. I said, well, now that's an unusual thing to say. Uh, I said, you know, what's your ethnicity? She said, I'm of African descent and I make keloids. Um, And instantly we identified with each other. And she said later, I love that you asked me, you asked me what my ethnicity was because you're trying to figure out, is there something about my genetics that will play a part in my successful healthcare? You're not trying to stick me into some kind of box that assumes a whole bunch of things about me. You're trying to figure out what's good for me in terms of my health. Now, I don't get any credit. I just was trying to figure out, why would you ask me about keloid? <laughs> um, but I found it to be very telling because these, these two roads are often 
uh, at odds with one another. I'm just generally or genuinely trying to extract information that I need to provide the best care I can provide. Whereas someone else could ask her that question and maybe she sees it as a census worker who has an agenda. Uh, And it's too bad, but we, we have to acknowledge that both of those things exist and in clinical medicine, it can be, it can get in the way. Uh, I think we've all experienced that. So when we talk in tonight's episode, gentlemen, I have seen most of the data refer to one group as black and the other group more commonly as Latino than Hispanic. What terms are the best to use for the purpose of clarity in this episode? Felix, what would you say? Well, what the, all the articles that we pulled for the episode uh, tended to use mostly Hispanic. But, you know, it's interesting. I wanted to mention that uh, as far as the ethnicities and the races in the United States, and I know that you had a question later on for this. Uh, when you go to the census questions for the United States, they specifically had uh, the way that people would be identified as whether white, black, or Asian or Native American, and then whether they would be Hispanic. So if we wanted to use the terminology from the government, Hispanic would be perhaps the, the terminology. Is that offensive to you? Not really when it comes to issues of medicine. Uh, I, I would say when I speak to my friends and other Puerto Ricans or Cubans, uh, if you talk, if you're in a, in a meeting of people from uh, Latin American ancestry, we uh, like to identify per the country of origin. Uh, as a matter of fact, today we were uh, jokingly at lunch and, and my office is very, uh, has a, a wide population. So but there's a lot of us uh, that are, are Latino, so to speak, but the one is Cuban, the one is Dominican, and so we, we each have our nuances. So it's important when we have patients to acknowledge that uh, origin, so to speak, even though a Puerto Rican and a Dominican may have a very similar ethnicity, but, but we identify a lot with the place where we came from. And that's something that non, um, non-Latinos, non-Hispanics don't necessarily understand. So... I'm a white guy. I grew up in a place where less than 1% of the people I grew up around in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan were not white. I didn't have a lot of experience with people from ethnic backgrounds growing up. I mean, I guess we were like the Irish, Croatian, Polish thing uh, up there. So I would like to know, you know, till the age of 27, I was pretty much isolated from this. Mark, what would you say is the best things we could accomplish in this episode? Just, just briefly, what do you hope we can accomplish? Yeah, I think to be able to empathize with the lens of, you know, how does it, how does life work for people who view, you know, life from a different ethnic cultural background. So instead of imposing, you know, like, why don't you just accept America the way it is to try and have an empathetic perspective of their experience, both their experience from their life, but also how they're viewed by the majority culture in our country. And I hope that all of our listeners will try and, and, and take on that empathetic perspective. Felix, there's that verse in Galatians, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. How do you think this applies to our topic today? Well, I would say that we are a church, right? This is a a show that is uh, the Catholic Medical Association podcast and radio show. And uh, all, all the shows that you've done in all these past two years have tried as best to focus on that Catholic Christian uh, context. So when we talk about patients, when we talk about epidemiology, I think it's important that we understand this universality. Uh, we were talking about that before we started the recording. So that universality, when you talk about being a Catholic, being a Christian, is very important because the the church is worldwide and uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, meaning it's both the whole planet, has affected, if you will, the church as a whole, the whole globe. And, And, you know, it's interesting. It's a sort of, we live in this dual kind of world 
Uh, I, I agree with everything you just said, Felix. I love that description of the, the universality of the church and the virus. Um, the virus is universal in its ability to cause harm. But it's not Catholic. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not a Catholic virus. It's just another another um, conspiracy theory. Yes. We don't. We don't need any more. It's not a Catholic virus. But at the same time, as we're oh, going to get into, if I know there are two people in front of me and I'm blinded, and then you tell me one of them uh, is uh, an African American minority living in poverty, and the other one is not. I'm going to be more worried about the first because what I know from the data is that person may be at greater risk of suffering from this. So we have to sort of be universal and blind. And at the same time, we have to unblind when it could affect the care we provide and the resources we call to order. It's a, it's a goofy existence, but we have to do that uh, as clinicians as part of our Catholic universal approach, I think. Mark and Felix, I'd like to start out getting into the data with a quote from uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York. Uh, early on in the pandemic, March 31st, he called the coronavirus, quote, the great equalizer. And really, that was a, a sentiment that the virus could sicken anyone, regardless of age, social status, ethnic background, uh, sex. Is it true, Mark, that and Felix, that SARS-CoV-2 is a great equalizer? Well, it's definitely taken, I think, some large segments of more privileged society and created the risk of contracting an infectious disease. You know, there's large swatches of American society who can't imagine ever contracting an infectious disease. Um, and so to share that risk with just the, all of humanity, there is an extent to which that is an equalizer. And I often suggest that COVID has sort of forced many segments of American society to empathize with how large portions of our world live every day in the face of infectious disease, in the face of inequalities, in the face of inconveniences, in the face of inability to access needed medications. And so I, in that sense, I would tend to concur a little bit that it has been something of an equalizer. But the data shows otherwise in terms of uh, infection rates and deaths. Yeah, so, yeah, this has been so uh, revealing and really sad to see, but it's no surprise to anyone who works in, in uh, healthcare inequalities type work. So what we've seen is after adjusting for age, black men are 4.2 times and black women 4.3 times more likely to die of COVID-19 than white adults. Uh, that was in the UK. That's um, huge. That's, that's enormous. It's, yes, it's phenomenal. A four times increased risk. And so I think we can, I'd like to unpack that. You know, there's lots yes. of data from Michigan, Louisiana, New York City. So the same experience has been found all over. And I hope we can explain maybe some of the reasons why this should be, because by Biologically and genetically, it doesn't make sense. Because in what, Chicago, almost three times as many blacks per 100,000 were uh, infected. Um, New York City mortality is twice that of whites for blacks. Um, and, and the hospitalization rate in New York City, a third of the people hospitalized were blacks, but they only make up 18% of the community. I mean, the numbers are just staggering. And then, you know, what are some of the numbers for the Hispanic population? Um, there it's Felix. Go ahead. Go ahead, Felix. This is your area. So, uh, based on the, the the information that was provided on these um, um, on, on the articles that we pulled, uh, they you see, over in the York City hospitalizations, we had that about eight uh, percent of the Latinos uh, were being affected. If we move to Chicago. Uh, there were about a thousand Latino cases, whereas there were 925 black cases. Uh, so per hundred thousand the, the population, data was varying. Yeah, hundred thousand. The data was varied, so it's certain that Latinos were not as affected by uh, COVID in these large centers as the blacks. But in Chicago, in fact, it was uh, Latinos were higher rates of of uh, infection, infection but only half the rate of blacks mortality. in terms of mortality but still right. more than whites uh and then the the new york city data the thing that really 
I don't understand, and maybe our epidemiologist can answer. Latinos make up, um, well, in the data, they call them Latinos. Hispanics made up 14% of the community, but they were only 8% of those hospitalized. So actually a lower hospitalization rate in that one area. How does that make sense, Mark? Uh, it's hard to know. You know, it could be a unique kind of a artifact of, of a local situation where the numbers are insufficient or, and you know, the nature of this is a, it's a virus, right? So you get, you get outbreaks in communities. So you could easily have, you know, the explosion and the exponential impact in a given community because of that one individual, that index case. And when you have exponential growth for seven days, so just it takes a lot of the numbers and a relatively long period of time for those to level out in a way as to be able to really evaluate the true ethnic impact. So, you know, it's possible that in that case, you know, the, the, uh, the black African-American communities were the, were the start and then it was their families that were affected or their churches. So uh, I think we have to, the trends are unequivocal though. So we do see some anomalies, but the African-Americans all over the country have been disproportionately affected overall by case and mortality. And I think this is the message that um, I think we need to get to in terms of what are the reasons for that? So I've, I've heard a lot of suggested reasons. You know, people have hypothesized that if you're in a minority status, you're more likely to be in a lower socioeconomic status. And if you're in that status, you're more likely to not have the choice to not go to work. Or you're statistically more likely to have a job that may put you at greater risk of infection uh, at work. Those are interesting ideas. Do we, do we have any hard data that can support any of those theories? Or is it just too early with too small of sample sizes? There's some numbers out there. So, uh, for example, the ability to work from home, 30% of whites said, yeah, I can work from home. Only 19% of blacks and 16% of Latinos said they could accommodate that. So you have, you know, essentially twice as many individuals, white individuals are in a position to move out of exposure to the virus. So that's a reality for sure. Um, if you think of homelessness, 50% of homeless uh, persons are, are African-American, whereas African-Americans only make up what, uh, um, 13% of our population, and yet they're disproportionately homeless. So those factors definitely, you know, uninsured status um, in 2008, 12% of African-Americans uninsured, 7.5% of whites, 19% um, of Latinos uninsured, way higher. Um, and then the Affordable Care Act lowered that some, but all the same. So those factors definitely contribute to a disadvantaged position to be in. Now, Mark, looking at a couple other populations, Asians, you know, I couldn't find a lot of information, although I did find that in the UK, they had about uh, double the infection rate, as you would expect from the population. But in New York City mortality, Asian mortality rate was even lower than whites. So is there a trend with Asians who don't live in Asia? Yeah, so in 40 U.S. states, Asian American deaths as a percent of population are lower than they would be by population. So clearly Asians have had a better experience in the U.S. Now there are some exceptions, um, California, uh, they're 15% of the population, and they were 16.7% of the deaths. So that was a little bit uh, different. But overall, Asians have, have performed better. And I would suggest that that, too, is a reflection of most Asian. Now, you could be, um, obviously, you could have lived in America for many generations. I know many Chinese Americans who have lived here for six, seven generations. So I don't want to be too... A broad sweeping in my generalizations, but many Asians have immigrated to the U.S. in the last 50 years, and they bring with them their culture. So, for example, wearing masks is completely normal for Asians. <laughs> so in New York City, those Asians were wearing masks right away. People were freaked out by it, <laughs> but they were doing the right thing. And in fact, wearing masks in the in epidemics started in an epidemic in Northeast China in 1912. Nobody in the world, they've been doing it for 100 years. And uh, even up until this day, you know, I think Asians have all lived through lots of epidemics, SARS and, you know, swine flu in 1968, Hong Kong flu in 1968, rather. Those 
so the early warnings and responsiveness and cooperation with authorities, they're really better prepared for that. And so I think that Asian Americans carried with them certain cultural attributes from how they would perform in their own countries, which actually served them well in the face of that in the U.S., even though they were having to do it contra the wider society in which they lived. And do we have data for Native Americans, Mark? Um, yeah, so Native Americans um, have a odds ratio here in North Dakota of testing positive of 1.3, so 30% higher. Um, but the overall numbers are not so high. Now, Arizona uh, there's been, has been affected, so the Native American populations have been hit. And where they have been hit has been much higher uh, mortality among them. So, yeah, that's another uh, concern for sure. You know, Felix sent me a list of like 18 articles to review before this, and I dutifully went through them. And one of the fascinating things I found is that there are some situations in which blacks and Hispanics have lower mortality rates than whites. Uh, one of them was in the area of influenza deaths. If you're over 65, you are more likely to die of influenza if you're white uh, than if you are black or Hispanic. And then in a study on Hispanics, this is all from the CDC, they, there's a 24% lower all-cause mortality rate among Hispanics for nine of the 15 leading causes of death. So they have a lower risk of death from cancer, heart disease, accidents, chronic lung disease, and Alzheimer's. So, so Mark, how do we put this into perspective with things like COVID? Um, yeah, there's definitely cases where the white, uh, health outcomes are, are worse. So I think this is a reminder that we don't want to make sweeping generalizations. You know, I think that's an example of um, if you're black, then you're poor, then you're sick. Who wants to live and bear that burden? That's, you know, a generalization that's not sufficiently nuanced. So, um, you know, these observations are there for, here's an example um, you know, I would say uh, whites have much higher rates of depression. Blacks have lower rates of depression. <laughs> However, among blacks, that depression is more persistent because they don't get sufficient care and treatment for that. So it's, you know, it's nuanced or opioid overdose deaths are, are much higher among whites than among blacks in the recent opioid epidemic. Of course, skin cancers are much higher among whites. <laughs> You know about that. You I know all about that. Yes. So, um, so I, I don't really know how to explain all of the nuance. I don't know, Felix, if you have understanding of what areas where Hispanics, I do know that with regard to opioid overdose deaths and depression, one of the reasons Hispanic and African-American societies are lower is they maintain a much stronger family, multi-generational family life. The social deprivation is less, whereas wider white society in America uh, has allowed for itself to live a highly individualized life. So living multi-generational families is much less common, which then contributes to malaise or depression in middle and particularly in later years. Um, I mean, I think of in my city, we have these lovely parks. And in the summer when I go there, the use of our parks for fun and picnics and barbecues and volleyball, way disproportionately people of color because they want to go outdoors and be together and socialize with, with their friends and extended friends and family. And that's a healthy attribute. And, uh, and it contributes to improved health outcomes. How would you respond to Certainly the Hispanic population, uh, as Mark is uh, well pointing out, uh, when it comes to mental illness that he's referring to, the, the family structure is there. There may be all these uh, psychosocial issues depending on the region of the country, but I could tell you that having a strong family structure uh, where uh, these uh, multi-generations are being taught from the very, very beginning to take care of one another uh, will have... Uh, a more supportive uh, atmosphere for all those people. Um, now, one, one thing that I was thinking, as Mark was saying, and this is me questioning the, the data from the CDC, uh, and there's no way for me to verify this, is that I wonder how much uh, this information has been biased by the fact that maybe uh, the research 
has not been done as deeply because some of these patients, and, and this has more to do with gathering information, some of these patients may be not willing to go to these hospitals or, or to have the test done because if they're undocumented, they may feel like if they get uh, identified, they may be deported. So that's, that's another thing that may be affecting uh, the, the statistics. It will be interesting as the year goes by, as we move on to 2021, whether these numbers that we're seeing now are going to remain the same uh, or they're going to change. Hmm. Well, something I found in you know, the articles that uh, Felix recommended is that there's a great difference in the work circumstances but before that, there was something even more startling, I'm sorry, and that is that in the United Kingdom, there is a huge difference in the number of physicians and nurses who have died who are in ethnic minorities. For instance, 87% of uh, UK residents are of white background, yet 63% of deaths in healthcare workers from COVID are in ethnic minorities, and in one study, 18 of the 19 doctors who died were in ethnic minorities. Now, you wouldn't think that the socioeconomic status would apply. So what other things might lead to this huge disparity, Mark? Hmm. This really gets to the heart of, I think, my kind of model of how to explain these disparities. 53% of the persons in that study you just described were not born in the UK. So the majority of their life was lived under a different set of circumstances. And this is a reminder that spending three years or four years at a higher standard of living with good health insurance and a good salary is not sufficient to reverse a lifetime of compromised health or of compromised health care or diet. Um, so that would be one factor is I think this is a reminder that life is lived over, you know, it's longitudinal in nature. And again, I think sometimes our view of healthcare is very much episodic, cross-sectional, what's happening today, but yet that's the result of the accrual of decades of experience, which is contributing to where the person is at today. So I think that could be a contributing factor. And all these, yeah. Yes. And then, you know, 17% of all workers in the country are Hispanic, but 53% of agricultural workers are. I mean, that's just, that's startling. Does that startle you, Felix? Well, not startling in the sense that that's my, my lived experience, if you will. Uh, for instance, uh, here in the state of Florida, uh, we still have a lot of farmland. It's a big part of the economy. And most of the workers uh, on those farmlands are of, of uh, Hispanic origin. So, uh, and that goes to, to part of the, the disparity and, and something I wanted to add earlier during the, the show is that, you know, another thing that I uh, envision and, and we see this is that people may not want to miss work because if you, even if you uh, are documented here, if you have all your papers or or let's say you're a U.S. citizen, um, you may not want to leave work even though you may feel like you got sick. I mean, that calls on a different set of, of issues. So uh, when it comes to figuring out how many of uh, those patients are truly affected with COVID, well, if they're not even leaving work to get tested, there's no way to know. Uh, so that would definitely affect those numbers. Yeah. Now, listening to you, Felix, I'm reminded that it seems like in a simplistic way, your genetics could make you predisposed to certain diseases or infections, in this case, COVID virus. I'm thinking as an obstetrician, I'm thinking of those of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, their probability of inherited breast cancer genes and things are off the charts positive. So their genetics makes them more susceptible, but your genetics could also make you more culturally susceptible for the things that you're describing. And then in the perfect storm, it could be both. You could be genetically more susceptible uh, as well as culturally more susceptible. And that's really difficult to get at uh, for, the, for the, you know, the, the kinds of things that you're describing. And we're not hearing a lot of people uh, in the news and in sort of the talking heads, we're not hearing a lot of people call out those, those discrepancies and risks, are we? Mm -hmm. 
Well, in fact, Mark, I would like to ask you this. There's an article in the New England Journal that said we should not claim differences in biology based on ethnicity as a potential cause, which to me flies in the face of what Chris was just saying about the Ashkenazi Jews and breast cancer. I mean, also with sickle cell disease, with thalassemias, there's so many different diseases that do vary ethnicity and the, and the keloid thing. So why would an article say we shouldn't count biological differences between ethnic groups as one of the causes? I think it's because it becomes too convenient, too easy, and it creates more problems than it solves. So for every example of knowing the risks of breast cancer, if you're an Ashkenazi Zoo mm -hmm. Jew and the benefit to that, there's 10 examples of saying that Native Americans can't metabolize alcohol because of low alcohol dehydrogenase in their GI system. So that's why they're just genetically predestined to not be able to handle alcohol. And it becomes too convenient to write off mm. what are really underlying results of structural inequalities and poverty and discrimination. So I think the point of that is not that there aren't occasionally differences that mm -hmm. are based in different genetics, but I think that it's too easily referred to and oftentimes lacking any evidence. And therefore, you know, I'm not persuaded that there's enough difference in underlying lung physiology sure. to, to explain the difference in mortality among African-Americans. So and biology can sometimes explain part of the difference, but probably not most of the differences in what we're talking about today. For instance, exactly. one of the articles Felix sent me suggested that certain ethnic groups could have a different stickiness between the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the ACE2 receptor in the body. Was that your understanding, Felix, of, of that article? Certainly, and that, that article, I started pulling it because um, there, there's some information coming out of China that uh, certain groups were having more of that uh, sticky uh, receptor, the ACE2 receptor, and and they were ascribing some of those mortality rates to that. And then uh, we found the article about uh, certain ethnic groups that, uh, especially uh, some African Americans or people of a African ancestry in general, would have uh, more of that ACE receptor, and that would conceivably make them yes. more at risk. But uh, to be honest with you, that data seems to still be in its infancy. And yeah. I tried looking Agreed. it further uh, and, and doing a wider literature search. But other than most of the studies coming out of China, I couldn't find much information yet on, on a worldwide uh, type of um, analysis as far as these, the polymorphisms of ACE2 receptors. I, you know, it will be interesting to find out again as we move along in the pandemic whether uh, there are people that will be investigating this across the globe, across ethnicities, to try to figure out who is going to end up with the, um, the major uh, uh, leukotriene and, and immunologic storm as opposed to the people that won't. So, Mark, you have a model that helps us to look at the major causes of these disparate results. Would, would you introduce us to that model of looking at things that many of us are ignorant of? Yeah. So what we're finding with COVID-19 is that individuals with underlying chronic, severe chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, heart conditions, you know, liver disease, immunocompromised individuals, that these people are dying uh, at higher rates than individuals who don't have those conditions. And then if we think about what are the common causes of those conditions, we're looking at issues like smoking with respiratory disease, obesity with diabetes and kidney disease, low levels of physical activity with, with the diabetes, um, poor cardiovascular disease, fundamental preventive health care, which results in serious heart conditions. Um, you know, some of these factors. So if you look at moving upstream, so you look at the COVID higher proportion of, of individuals with COVID disease as a result of chronic conditions, those chronic conditions we know to be a result of a list of risk factors that I've just described. And if you move further upstream from that, those risk factors are frequently found among individuals who are living in disparate and in inequitable life conditions. So they live in polluted communities with poor air quality. 
they live as a victim of discrimination and even being uh, looked down upon in their communities. Uh, they live in more densely populated homes and so therefore the uh, risk of transmission is higher. Um, they oftentimes lack health insurance and they live with the anxiety of unemployment and then their insurance is attached to their employment. So if they lose their job or if they're employed less than, 50 hour, less than 20 hours a week, then they won't get insurance. And so these conditions over the course of much of one's life set them up to be predisposed to those risk factors, which we know then contribute to those chronic diseases, which then result in higher mortality among those who contract COVID. So in a sense, it's a lifetime of experience that sets you up that if you meet with COVID, you're at a disadvantage to be able to overcome it because of a lifetime of factors, biological and then moving on even to sociological. And so this is my understanding of the better explanation for ethnic disparities in COVID outcomes to finding some genetic or even physiological factor that explains it. Felix, what would you like to add to that? So I, I think I, I agree with Mark. We need to start looking at these factors. And I know Mark's uh, expertise has a lot to do with um, these kinds of disparities. Mark, I understand it's mainly uh, has, has to do with the opioid epidemic. But, but uh, I, I don't think we've been talking in the, in the media, I should say, or even on the articles that are being published a lot about these disparities. It's a, it's a topic that is now becoming more important as we move forward. But I think for us clinicians, uh, especially if we are treating patients in an emergency room setting, ICU setting, we need to be uh, more aware of these issues because that way later on we can find ways to prevent uh, these issues from coming back to bite us if we do get that second wave of infections that we all are concerned about. Mark, one of the things that you taught us early on in our interviews with you was the concept of weathering. Would you explain that to us? Because it's something that's not in, in my experience, but is very important in what you're describing. Yeah, the concept of weathering is the notion of living for large year, you know, portions of one's life, facing wear and tear that comes as a result of living in stressful circumstances, and there's a physiological response, which we know of, which is your sympathetic nervous system response where your adrenal gland uh, excretes adrenaline and cortisone, which increases your heart rate. And when you experience that multiple times a day, that uh, compromises one's health. And so if you think about individuals who live many years of their life being stared at because they're of their color, having jokes that are maybe meant to be in good nature, but they hurt, making generalizations of individuals, seeing friends incarcerated at, you know, really high rates, uh, school expulsions more common among African Americans, living with food insecurity and the, the embarrassment of, you know, you go to your football team's Thursday night shared meal, and then it's the African American kids who want to take home all the leftovers because there isn't necessarily as much food at home. Well, that's humiliating. All of those factors are a part of this, this thing called weathering, which then contributes to compromised health and a compromised sense of, of, of even self-esteem. Uh, I was talking with one of my students about this topic earlier today. And one thing she talked about was many of these individuals have a tremendous family responsibility. So even if you're employed and have a good job, all of your free time has to be devoted to supporting your family members, your extended family. So all of these factors then contribute to challenges to the ability to uh, maintain uh, one's health. And in a sense, it's almost like premature aging. You know, I mean, I think that's fascinating. Um, and listening to you, Mark, and then listening to Felix, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm again reminded of this uncomfortable intersect between science and kind of politics sociology. Um, because on, on the one hand, society wants to say, we're colorblind. There's no difference. 
But as a clinician in the exam room, if there is a difference that might affect your health outcome, I need to not only understand it, but I need to call it out. Hmm. I need to say, are, are you of Ashkenazi Jewish dis- descent? Are you of African descent? Because if you are, what I do for you is going to be different. That's not sociology, that's science. But the sociology gets in the way because of all the things that Mark said. Um, what's that mean for us as a profession and caring for people, not only for the COVID pandemic, but, but moving forward in good health care uh, you know, of the future? I'd like to ask Felix to help with that. You know, you're a provider and take care of patients. And do you have any thoughts on that? How does this affect how we treat our patients? Well, one of the things that uh, we try to do, and, and, and you already said that I'm a medical oncologist, so th- there are resources uh, in an office, and I would say mainly the nurses. Uh, what will we do without our nurses? Uh, they get to learn uh, the, the, these patients much better sociologically and emotionally than I do as a physician. So I think it's important when it comes to treating patients and you, as you said, well said, not only COVID, but for other clinical conditions, it's important to know their family dynamics and how that's affecting uh, the, the way that they are seeing their disease. And, and, and that's very important when it comes to, to uh, pandemics, uh, like we're talking about now. Uh, there will be things that are not going to be necessarily obvious when we see the patient, but then when you look further into it, well, that's probably why they got sick, or that's probably why the patient did not take the medication, and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, the couple of the outbreaks, like the meatpacking plant in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, you know, the, these are situations where it's um, new Americans who are being exposed because of their working conditions without protective equipment, who are then going home to live in homes with multi-generational families in cramped living quarters who then spread it to their family members. Um, And so to me, they are victims of this pandemic. It's not a sign of their bad behaviors. It's that they are the most essential workers in our society. And yet it seems as if some attitudes would suggest, therefore they're, they're dispensable. We shouldn't shut down the society to protect them well, that's not reflecting a sense of respect for them as essential workers, not in the sense of, you know, highly paid, high socioeconomic status, but they're essential for keeping our society going. Shouldn't we then treat them with even higher regard and more concern and more respect? We absolutely should. So what can we, who are you know, members of the body of Christ, who are being faced with something that we often might think without realizing it, oh, if they only chose differently, if they made different choices, they wouldn't be in this problem. How do we come to realize and then respond to the fact that there are structural inequalities that are not within their control? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of policies out there. You know, housing, if you go back to the old redlining days of the 1930s, you know, you go back generations. So politicians drew red lines around the districts of their cities and basically drew circles around black neighborhoods and basically said they're not, they don't qualify for home loans because they're African-American. It was fundamental discriminatory policy, which then set them up for the inability to buy a home, inability to get a loan to buy a home the inability to settle down, which then led to more poverty, which then led to less tax revenue for those neighborhoods. So it basically gutted the schools because the home values were then lower. And then the kids got worse education. And this was only outlawed in 1976. You know, it was 40 years of allowing for redlining of neighborhoods. And then now we blame African-American schools that are, you know, not performing to a certain level. Well, in some ways, they're still trying to get out from 30 or 40 years of of some of those inequalities. And so when I think, you know, what do we do about this? Certainly, you've got made some good recommendations regarding, you know, individual patient care. But I think there are policies in our society that we need to reconsider. So for example, I think an employer-based health insurance program is 
puts the lower socioeconomic persons at greater vulnerability because employers have the right to hire them to a minimum number of hours where they don't have to give them insurance. Employers also have a right to lay off workers and then when you're laid off, then you lose your insurance. Now COBRA might protect them, but they might not be able to process their COBRA paperwork. So you think about this change, and then if you change insurance, you change jobs, you change insurance, then you have to change healthcare systems, which then means you, if you even had a primary care provider, now you have to start over. So I think that a, 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 com a deeper commitment to a universal health coverage that provides the bare minimums of healthcare for all people is an essential piece, just like I would argue 12, eight to 10 years of education should be provided to everyone some way, you know, some way in order to sort of give people a chance to get their toes on the first rung of the ladder of society so that they can ascend. And many of our policies still keep them even from getting their toes on that first rung. Felix, what would you add? Well, I would say that uh, we need to strike a balance, but uh, what, what Mark is alluding to is, is something that I, I often saw, for instance, when I was in my, in my training years uh, a few decades ago in Connecticut, taking care of inner city uh, patients. Uh, and, and so, indeed, I, I, I think education and, and healthcare go hand in hand. And, and one of the things that would, we should do uh, as uh, maybe we move on to try to talk to our policymakers is in just in the short term, maybe it can become a long-term solution. Uh, those populations that we are identifying at higher risk, we have to find a, a mechanism to uh, identifying that they have a higher risk doesn't mean that they will necessarily get the disease and we need to get the education out to them so as to decrease that risk. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I, I was directing uh, some of my friends to that are part of the uh, Hispanic Latino community is that the CDC has a very good uh, website that has information in Spanish and Florida uh, with the Florida Health Department also has that. But I would say that we cannot stop at just telling people, okay, do this, put the mask on but also continue to uh, relay the message through the media as a whole. And, and we should not, as Mark was alluding to, we should not just say, okay, you're black, you're Latino, you know, you, you belong to the high risk, uh, tough luck. You don't have insurance, tough luck. We need to uh, beef up the, um, rev up the educational effort so that we can continue to flatten the curve in these high risk uh, populations. So as we wind this up, you know, final comments. Mark, what do you want listeners to remember a year from now from listening to this episode? If there's one thing you want them to remember, what, what would it be? What's the most important take-home point here, do you think? It's easier for some to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps than others. And to acknowledge that there are large swatches of our society, and I'm not saying that we are discriminatory in, in giving them things that are not fairly uh, shared with others, but that we revisit history, we revisit the way in which policies may, might disproportionately affect certain groups, and accept that, that there are many privileges that go along with certain segments of our society, which none of us want to give up, but can we revisit the fact that some of our privilege, the converse of that is the absence of privilege for many others. And it's a privilege that they want, but they can't necessarily just get by working harder because there's so many barriers to overcome that are historical, that are policy driven, that are financial. And I guess my hope would be that listeners would have, you know, just we would be more empathetic to that possibility and then try live as a good neighbor, you know, live as a, as a concerned neighbor to all. And Felix, from your perspective, what, uh, what would you offer? Well, I, I wanted to add something that I was looking up last night. Uh, a couple of things, if, if you allow me. Uh, one of the things uh, is that we, we keep identifying uh, ourselves as, as Catholic and, and because we are, and we need to 
learn what our church teaches when it comes to uh, social teaching, because this episode has been about the, uh, the social teachings of the church. And we, just as we uh, are out there defending the life of the unborn, uh, also defending uh, the life of the vulnerable, uh, the elderly, and we want to make sure that people understand that uh, physician-assisted suicide is bad, well, that also ties into this uh, global view that we need to focus on the life and dignity of the human person. And, and we know where that comes from. It comes directly from God. It's, it's that concept of Imago Dei. So if we look deeply into that Imago Dei, which all of us that are participating in this show share, then we uh, can translate that to how we see patients in the office and how we see patients in a wider epidemiological way. Uh, that was one of the things I wanted to share. And another thing I, I wanted to, to stress was the fact that uh, uh, our, our recent popes have been very, very committed to, to this uh, care of, of, of the vulnerable uh, as, and, and this uh, segues into caring for people with COVID. And, and our champion, uh, John Pope, uh, John Paul II uh, was very much into that. I mean, we we learned from him the the meaning of solidarity, even though that was something that had been uh, talked about during Vatican uh, Second Vatican Council. So we need to go back to the teaching of our popes. We need to go back to the teaching of of the the most recent encyclicals, so that we can actually apply it. So, so we should continue to be committed as Catholic healthcare professionals uh, and as people that are interested in improving society to learn and, and to continue to um, question our own consciences as to are, are we uh, abiding by those life choices? Are we abiding by what the church teaches us that we have to do? Mm. So that we can follow Christ more uh, ethically and uh, more authentically. Chris, I like hearing your last words. You always have something good to say. I hope they're not my last words, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> although one never knows. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I really, uh, Felix and Mark both, I really appreciate, you know, your perspectives. Um, I, I guess the thing that I would offer is we need to remember that calling out an objective truth is never wrong. Uh, and so because of, uh, of badness that has occurred in the past, many well-meaning people want to not call out um, um, racial or ethnic genetic differences out of fear of being mislabeled. Mm. But at the same time, as clinicians and as policymakers, if it's an objective truth, we have to call those things out. My African children are much more likely to suffer from hypertension as they age the non-African descent uh, people. And to fail to call that out would be a failure to give them the, the healthcare they deserve. Um, so if our motives are genuine, we're always okay. Um, as we try to learn to speak and to use the right terms and, uh, and terminology, I mean, the dignity of the human person is to do what is best for that person regardless. Um, and sometimes that is making genetic distinctions because diseases affect sometimes genetically uh, diverse people in, in different ways. Hmm. What and a I great think, discussion, gentlemen. Thank I you. think as Mark has pointed out, though probably most of the problems that we're seeing now are due to structural inequalities. But again, like the Catholic way is both and, you know, uh, we both learn from both scripture and tradition. Christ is both God and man. Well, it's both genetic and structural. And it seems like yeah. it leans more structural and it does genetic, especially with COVID. So uh, none of us should rule out either side of that. But I think for people like me that grew up in a, a very non-universal uh, background with everyone very similar, it's good for me to realize this. And I hope many of our listeners benefited. And we thank you listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning and official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Most definitely. And thank you for our terrific guest this evening. Uh, please share this good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or always at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. 
This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.